Hello, and thank you for joining us for the last Lancet HIV podcast of 2022. I'm Philippa Harris, the Deputy Editor, and I'm delighted to be talking to Lisa Jameson from the Health Economics and Epidemiology Research Office at the University of the Witzwaterrand in South Africa, and Gazina Mayarath, who shares an affiliation between the Health Economics and Epidemiology Research Office and the University of Boston in the US. Their paper on the cost-effectiveness of long-acting capitegravir for pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, is in the December issue. So thank you both so much for joining us today. I was wondering if you could start by just telling us, you know, what's going on with pre-exposure prophylaxis in South Africa at the moment? You know, what's available and who can access it? Thanks. That's a good question. So currently, um, oral PrEP um, is available in South Africa. This is in the form of tenofovir and entracetabine or Trivada um, is the uh, patented name, I think. And it's available currently in over 2,000 clinics in South Africa. And as of September 2022, the last time we had some stats on this, we had over 600,000 people ever initiated over the six-year period in which it was available. Um, Just to put this in perspective, this is about 20%, the largest portion of the approximate 3 million people worldwide who have currently initiated oral PrEP. And this is only in a single country. So also to emphasize that these are the numbers that have been ever initiated. So over the six-year period and not currently on PrEP, as we know that many people are only on PrEP for a short amount of time. And to ask about costs, who pays for the PrEP? For for the longest time, most of the PrEP was paid for by funders, so Global Fund, etc. But I think some of this has now shifted to the Department of Health, South Afri- the South African government. Is that correct, Kazina? Yeah, so quite recently, um, virtually in the le- in the last 12 months, um, the PrEP program has moved away from demonstration sites, often directly funded by funders or um, by by research funds, really, into all the primary health care clinics in South Africa, of which we have 4,000, which means two things. A, it's available much closer to most pe- where most people live and, and theoretically most, more easily accessible. But also, B, it is being funded from the South African government's um, HIV conditional grant, which funds the mainstay of the country's HIV program. In South Africa, we are in the very unusual situation that we are a high prevalence country, um, I think the only African country also that funds about 85% of our own of our HIV program from our own domestic tax resources, and and PrEP is now part of that funding. And what is the demand for for alternative forms of PrEP, like long-acting cabotegravir? So we we won't actually know until it's actually rolled out uh, with appropriate demand creation interventions in place. But what we do know from acceptability studies is that people have shown a high preference for injectable products. For example, a study that was done in 2019 by Cheng et al. found that in heterosexual men in KwaZulu-Natal, 48% of them said that they would prefer to have an injectable product compared to only 33% who said they would want to use oral PrEP. So there is a much higher preference for an injectable product. So that's great news. Also, if we could sort of try and relate it back to the contraceptive market for young women in South Africa, we have more than 60% of young women who are on contraceptive choose the injectable form rather than the oral pill. Like I said, we're not sure what the demand would be until it's really rolled out, but we do know that there is this demand for injectable products. There is acceptability studies have shown there's a preference for them. So I don't 
think it's that unreasonable to assume that there would be a high demand for injectable PrEP once it's rolled out, and uh, certainly it would be higher than the current demand for oral PrEP. So your study, which was looking at the cost-effectiveness of of long-acting injectable PrEP versus oral PrEP, so could you start just by sort of telling us how you worked this out, sort of what your, you know, what your model was? Right. So we used uh, an already established model, uh, epidemiological model called Tembisa. Uh, I think many of your readers might be aware of it, especially if they are, you know, aware of what's going on in the HIV world. It was created by Lee Johnson at UCT, and it models the HIV epidemic in South Africa. It is the model used by both the South Africa government and UNAIDS to model HIV in South Africa. We, so we used the model to scale up both oral prep and care ballet each in turn, and then looked at the impact over 20 years and compared this to the current baseline of of the HIV program where it is now with our with our rollout of oral prep. And we assume that everyone who is already eligible for oral prep would instead access care ballet in in the future. And alongside doing this. Epi modeling, we also evaluated the cost of the HIV program and the incremental cost of scaling up each of these interventions. And since this is an HIV transmission model, we can account for down the line impacts on, on reducing the need for ART. So you can imagine we're preventing HIV here and then later down the line, we're not going to need the, all those people taking up ART. So we targeted everyone between 15 and 24 years of age, female sex workers, MSM, and we also assumed a slightly higher uptake of care ballet compared to oral prep. This is purely based on the acceptability studies that we, you know, described earlier. And in, in doing this, you know, we what we wanted to answer is what price do we need care ballet at for it to be as cost effective as oral prep? Because currently, no country really knows what price care ballet will be coming into the market. But we know that the only list price available is sitting at $22,000 per user per year. That's the United States um, list price, sorry. And that is not affordable for South Africa or any other low and middle income country. So essentially did the threshold analysis to determine the optimal price for care ballet. Perhaps to add to that, so a threshold analysis um, in health economics is, we think, an underutilized tool. It basically uses any cost-effectiveness analysis. It can be done with any cost-effectiveness kind of model and turns it on its head to say, rather than talking about the incremental cost-effectiveness of A, B, and C, we just solve that whole complex model to give us the exact price level at which a new product for which we don't have a current price yet, would become cost-effective. And that then allows us to throw into this whole conversation, including with the manufacturer and including in negotiations between the government and the manufacturer, an exact price level that would make the new uh, drug affordable in a way, but also really acceptable to the government. So in other words, they could easily swap out funding for oral PrEP with now funding for the injectable version without losing out in terms of their value for money. And that's the argument that um, the South African government finds quite compelling and a number of other international players, even though it's it's fairly easy to do once you have your cost-effectiveness analysis. And part of what we want to see more is this type of analysis, given that we have a lot of economic evaluations of Kabbalah, um across different settings, but this kind of analysis that actually delivers a, a single estimate and, and price point that can be used to drive policy forward. 
No, I can see that because yeah, with the, with the list price of of twenty two thousand dollars, like you said, I mean, you know, if you're looking at whether that would be cost effective, you know, you you almost you don't need to really do a particularly complicated sum in a um, you know model. The, the sum is so huge that it's it's quite easy to say no. Mm. So, what were your findings once you analysed all this? So we found, of course, that you know, Cabalet is so much more. I mean, we know from the trials, Cabalet is so much more effective than oral prep. So we, of course, found that there was a much larger impact, actually a three times higher impact on reducing HIV infections compared to just scaling up oral prep. So with oral prep, we found that it could avert between four and eight percent of new HIV infections over the next 20 years if we scaled it up to our, our coverage levels. And in contrast, Cabalet can prevent between 15 and 28 percent of new HIV infections. And as as Gazina mentioned, we we did the threshold analysis and estimated the price of Cabalet has to be between nine and nine dollars and fifteen dollars per injection, or um, you know if I had to equate it to an annual um, uh, cost, it would be between sixty dollars and a hundred dollars per year. So that is just a fraction of the price of this twenty two thousand uh, dollar US list price. I mean, it's 05 percent of it. And again. Uh, you know, this was very useful for the South African government, who um, are you know, or this who hold the responsibility of negotiating uh, the price of Cabalet with the manufacturers. And perhaps again to add, so why we have these ranges is because we tested different scenarios of LA uptake and then also duration of effective use. Again, two of the main elements that we don't really have a good way of guessing right now. But recently on a call with. Lots of other modelers who did similar analyses and, and across the board, it seemed that like our uptake assumptions were actually quite conservative, which you know, it's more or less people going in at the low end of the range. Um, so we, we do think it's, you know, we're not too extravagant when we think about how many people mm-hmm. will take it up. We still see this huge impact. Um, and we can say that that, you know, assuming this impact and a, and a moderate uptake, um, this is the price. But we also added a lot more elements that we don't aren't too sure about into our model and kind of redid this analysis. And adding all uncertainty from all from all quarters makes the acceptable price level a little higher, but, but nothing goes beyond $20 per injection. So that is basically given all uncertainty that we can somehow estimate, um, it should not go beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, I was also going to mention the sensitivity analysis, and, and we got very specific as well, saying, oh, what if, you know, in our main analysis, we we assumed that there'd be a high uptake in Cabalet, but we also did a sensitivity analysis that looked at if they had the same coverage as, or, you know, exactly the same coverage as oral prep, what would it look like? And it didn't really, like Gazina mentioned, didn't really move the cost per injection all that much. It was very, very similar and so, I mean, there is there is sort of some hope for for a sort of cheaper, long acting cab. Like recently, Vive, who are the manufacturers, and the Medicines Patent Pool have a licensing agreement that would allow generic manufacture in South Africa. So, what what impact do you think this will have? Will it be enough to reduce the price so people can access it? And you know, what has there been any progress on that since? So, so firstly, none of us know what the price of a generically manufactured. Cabalet version would be. But what's really important is there will only be three companies around the world that would be allowed by the originator manufacturer to manufacture the generic version. So that's quite limited already when 
we're potentially talking about a huge market. This is product that already there's a lot of demand that is being ramped up that we have good reasons to believe will completely outshadow oral prep and, and other prevention interventions um, if we do it right from the beginning. But also what's really important is that it will be at least three, perhaps five years before these three generic manufacturers will have ramped up sufficient production. Since in South Africa, Carbodegaville has just been approved for use in the public sector virtually a couple of weeks ago. This will mean for just South Africa, three wasted years if we wait for the generic uh, production to start. And that's a lot of HIV infections that needn't happen. So this means that in the meantime, we will have to take the drug at whatever price the, the current manufacturer offers it. They made it clear that they will not be able to produce the drug at the price level that we estimated or at the even lower cost price kind of, you know, production at cost that others such as the Clinton Health Access Campaign have calculated as feasible. So they've made it very clear and they keep repeating that it's not a small white pill, but it's in fact a sterile injection, all of which is true. But what we tend to respond then is, well, wait for the moment that the generic companies come into the market and basically say, hold my beer. So, you know, are able to do exactly that produce a sterile injection at a fraction of the price. What's also really important is that the non-generic man manufacturer exists to make HIV solutions available to low and middle income countries at cost. They exist to end AIDS and that's their, their main tagline. So we've, we think in the meantime, if in fact the, the current manufacturer can't come down on the price, and while we're waiting for a generic competition to show them how it can be done, we need commitments from all sides to bring down the cost to below the, the price to below cost. And that's because we need to make an indent into HIV infections now. Those commitments we think should need to come from all sides. That means international funders, that means high prevalence countries' governments who need to commit to developing guidelines and you know creating demand to kind of make this basically create big enough markets that will create this volume. The funders role could lie in something that is very similar to what happened, for example, with HIV self-test, which was another product that was just a little bit too tricky to produce very at very low cost. So what happened there was that the Gates Foundation came in and did a buy-down, basically saying we will guarantee this market size if you have those volumes and we will invest into basically the price being uh, low enough for then other funders and also governments such as the South African government to be able to carry the rest of the of the price. Pricing for pharmaceuticals or for anything else really for that matter is a very, very simple equation. Basically, you need either a large enough single unit price or a large enough volume. You multiply the one by the other and there is your total you know, revenue that you're getting out of it, part of which could be your profit if you're interested in actually making money out of it. If we can't come down further on the price, we need to work on the volume being big enough. And for that, we need large enough, quickly enough generated markets that are also sustained for which um, all sides will have to come together. And just another part. So we do think that governments are important here. For example, South Africa was successful 
a couple of times over in creating large enough markets that then um, convinced the producers to kind of come down with the price because now the volume part of the equation was already guaranteed. And this happened in 2012 with the new point of care TB tests that were basically, you know, the, the first, so there was a whole tiered pricing structure behind it that had been negotiated by FIND and the um, the World Health Organization. And South Africa broke through the first two volume dependent tiers single-handedly by committing to this new diagnostic and rolling it out really quickly over two or three years in the uh, South African public health sector, which meant that we reduced the cost of that particular test by, I think, 70% for the rest of the world. And something similar happened with HIV bioloads. South Africa is a big market when it comes to HIV, for better or worse. But that doesn't mean that it is a player that um, can be, if supported, taken, can take serious steps to bring down prices for the rest of the world um, while you know funding it in part with South African domestic um, money. What we probably don't need at this stage are too many implementation studies. We've just heard we'd had 133 of them for oral prep. It's a quick way for all sides to say, look, we're doing something. We are we are bringing this novel intervention into the countries, and you know the funders fund it, and the research institutions get to do something useful, and some people will access it. What we think happened doing this with oral prep in South Africa is that it, it works to, in a way, stigmatize the product because you can only access it in certain places and it's often kind of limited to people who self-declare or self-identify as being at high, high risk. If we have implementation studies, which seems to be very much the strategy of the manufacturer at the moment, we only need them for that kind of couple of years while we are creating big enough markets in the public sector that are sustainably funded. No, I completely agree about implementation studies. I think in the the UK, um, you know, the, the sort of funding for oral prep just sort of got dragged out while while the government insisted on on sort of ongoing implementation studies when when it was very clear that there was a, a demand and that it would be beneficial and it and it you know everyone working on it was doing their best to convince the government about this, but it it really I don't think was needed. So yeah, so going forward, you know. This, you know, long-acting cavitigravir is the, the sort of the new prep product we're talking about here. But, you know, there will be lots more in future, hopefully. Um, I know you were talking about young women. You know, it'd be fantastic to see a, a combined contraception, you know, prep injectable perhaps in the future and things like that. So what do you both think is, is the best way to ensure any future products, you know, reach the people that need it as quickly as possible? So we do believe we have an actual game changer at our hands right now. We are aware that the that the HIV prevention pipeline is brimming, is as full as it's ever been, and that is fantastic news. We need to treat cabotegravir both as something that needs to happen now, but also almost as a pilot product for then you know getting all the other um, products in the pipeline out into the market and really enabling something that we are all dreaming of, but I don't think has happened yet, which is having options available at every outlet and at a variety of outlets. So people can actually go there and say, I'd much rather have the ring, or I'm really, really happy to have injections every two months, or I'll just take this with my you know, contraceptive pill, so give me another pill, that's exactly what I want. Or, you know, for all that matters, uh, condoms are my thing. Or, you know, in my partnership, that's exactly what what, what works best. So yes to 
having a pipeline and planning for that pipeline, yes, to having options. We also know that we are horrible at making those options available right now when it comes to contraceptive choice. That is something that in South Africa should be happening. But uh, we did a study quite recently which showed that basically most clinics only have the pill or perhaps they had the implantable that we had um, available for a little while and a condom. But really, there isn't all that much in terms of choice. And that is because it's really hard to do both from the supply side to kind of keep those supply chains sufficiently filled continuously, but also from the healthcare client interaction to actually keep offering everything that's available. So we do think let's focus on Cabotegaver for a sweet little minute. Let's get that that product a big enough market. We think for, we know from our modeling and these and I have modeled impacts on the on the South African HIV epidemic for a good, I don't know, 15 years now between us. We know that injectable cabotegavir is one of our biggest impact products. We've never seen these kinds of um, HIV case reductions that Lisa just quoted of, you know, almost a third with, um, over 20 years. It's basically second only to ART to having more people on antiretroviral treatment. So we, while we're kind of fixing whatever we can do or building whatever we can do for cabotegavir, we also have to continuously ensure that more people take up ART and find it easier to stay on it. We Both of those basically need the same multi-pronged approach. And for cabotegavir, we have lots of lessons learned, especially also from oral prep about things that didn't work. So we need to get it right from the start. For this, as mentioned, we need early and sustained commitment from the donors, from the governments of high prevalence countries, from the generic and other manufacturers. We need a joint planning mechanism that allows building up enough manufacturing capacity so we don't throttle whatever demand we are creating by now not being able to fulfill it. For this, we are very, very interested in localizing manufacturing, especially in high HIV prevalence countries, and uh, cutting transport waste. We also need to create demand, and we need to do this in a targeted way that doesn't stigmatize the product, while making sure we create demand that we can actually fulfill. We essentially, between us, need to make a whole generation want this or other prep products and make them theirs. Anything else will fail. And Lisa, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Yeah, just, you know, just echoing what Kazina says, I think just making a product as easy, you know, as widely available as possible. You know, we mentioned that, you know, we can learn from the oral PrEP program, but I think there's also a lot we could learn from the antiretroviral program, the treatment program here in South Africa. Um, amongst others, it's the the way we've got, you know, it's expanding more and more, but differentiated service delivery. So people might, you know, be able to access, hopefully in the future, this the, the injectable, not only from the public clinic, but also from, you know, a private pharmacy um, or from a mobile site or, you know, just be able to access it wherever they want to. Who knows what kind of innovative ways will be available in the future. And then um, secondly, I know a two-monthly injection is great, but I know Vivo busy looking at whether three-monthly injectable um, is possible and, you know, with the same injectable, not a different formulation or anything. Um, and that, I think, was just some lessons learned through the COVID pandemic when they had some uh, trial, you know, some of the trial participants in the HPTN trials come 
well, three monthly visits instead of two monthly, just because of logistics and, you know, there was just difficult to get to the clinic. So I, I, I think that's also being looked at at the open label trial. Um, but yeah, so so that is just, you know, two monthly is great. Three monthly would be slightly better and just making it as widely available as possible using different uh, service delivery models. Well, thank you both for talking us through all that. It was really fascinating. So thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the holiday period and we'll be back in 2023 to continue the conversation.